Welcome and thank you for standing by. All participants are in a listen-only mode until the question and answer session of today's call. To ask a question, you may press star followed by the number one. Also, the conference is being recorded. If you have any objections, you may disconnect at this time. Now I will turn the meeting over to your host, Mr. Michael Oko. You may begin. Great. Thank you very much, and good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to those around the world, and thank you for joining this press call today. I am Michael Oko, the Global Communications Director here at the World Resources Institute. WRI is a global research organization that works at the nexus of the environment, human development, and the economy. We have around 800 staff with offices around the world working to create a more sustainable and prosperous planet for everyone. Today, we are hosting a press call ahead of COP24, which is taking place in Katowice, Poland, from December 3rd to the 14th. Um, before we jump in, I'd just like to note that this call is being recorded, and we'll have a recording available after the call. It will be on our website. Um, and if you have any questions for any of our experts or any additional issues, you can contact me or my colleague, Rhys Gerholt, um, who will also be on the ground in Poland. Um, today, I'm pleased to welcome our speakers from WRI. Uh, we will first hear from Dr. Andrew Steer, who's the president and CEO of WRI. We'll then hear from Yamid Dagnet, who's a senior associate in our International Climate Action Initiative. Um, she is very involved in the negotiations uh, at the summit. We'll hear from Joe Thwaites, who is an associate in our finance center. He will focus on financial issues. And then we'll hear from Helen Mountford, Helen directs our economics program here at WRI. So without further ado, I'd like to call, turn the call over to Andrew Steer. Andrew. Thank you, Michael. Um, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Thank you for joining us. Um, so we're heading into Katowice in the next couple of weeks. Um, four big framing themes, if you like. The first one is urgency. Um, we now know a lot more than we knew a year ago about how urgent things are. You've all read the 1.5 degree report, but it, it truly is astonishing. You think about it, even at 1.5 degrees, 70% of the coral reefs uh, will be lost. Um, two degrees, basically, all will. Um, I hope you've seen the material that we've put out and others have put out on the analysis of that. So things are much more urgent. There is no excuse now for not heading for a 1.5 degree world. Uh, the second uh, big framing theme is, is uh, the possibility is much greater than before, just as the urgency is. Every month that passes, we are getting more evidence, more analysis that demonstrates that you can move from today's high carbon, low efficiency to tomorrow's high efficiency, low carbon world economy, and you can do it smartly. And Helen Mountford in a, in a moment will say a little bit more about that. A recent report we brought out for the um, a new climate economy showed a $26 trillion economic benefit if we simply follow smart climate policies. Yesterday, the um, Energy Transitions Commission came out with a very important report on the hard-to-abate sectors. And everybody's been saying, you know, there's 30% of the economy very hard to abate in, 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 in chemicals, in cement, in steel, in heavy transport. Well, this report, which is led by some of the leading thinkers and some of the leading energy companies in the world, came out to show actually it's possible costs less than one, uh, less than half a percent of GDP. Conventional wisdom is being overturned. This is sort of the final nail in the coffin to those who say it can't be done. It actually can be done. Third sort of big theme is there are some incredibly encouraging developments. 
Um, we never would have imagined that 498 major international corporations would have signed up to science-based targets, nor that already 500 major companies would have signed up to um, support the task force on climate-related financial disclosures. 1,600 cities signed on to seriously ambitious uh, programs, exciting things happening in China and India, and even in the U.S. Congress. I mean, we now actually have a House committee on science, space, and technology that will be led by somebody who understands science, uh, who actually believes that climate change is urgent. Um, America's pledge also shows that the U.S. can get within striking distance of earlier goals. We have seven new governors who ran on strong renewable energy platforms. So there's, uh, there's a lot to be encouraged about. But the fourth um, uh, point is that it is nowhere near enough. Um, I mean, sometimes as we approach these cops, one sort of thinks of, you know, Nero fiddling while Rome burns. Um, it is simply unacceptable, the lack of pace, the lack of ambition. And that's why this meeting, uh, uninteresting though many people think it sounds uh, in Katowice, um, is actually uh, quite important. It's going to try and do three technical issues. First, agree on the rule book. Second, talk about how do we raise ambition. Third, talk about financial investment and so on. Lots of other things going on, on there, and some of those that follow me will just say a word about it. We're going to be uh, launching our uh, major world resources report on the future of food, which is very linked to climate change. The Global Commission on Adaptation is going to be very present there. That's a, a new and important initiative that Bill Gates, Ban Ki-moon, and Kristalina Georgieva will be co-chairing. So I'll stop there. Also very exciting things going on at the sub-national level. Cities will be there and so on. But I will now pass on to Yamid, uh, who will talk about the more technical aspects of what we're looking for in the rule book. Thank you, and good morning, good afternoon, everyone. I will start with ambition. I think, as uh, uh, Andrew said, the upcoming climate change conference in Katowice provides a critical opportunity for countries to show they're taking the IPCC report seriously. Uh, since at the summit, uh, they, ha they have important ways to, uh, they have important opportunities to demonstrate their commit commitment to limit temperature rise to 1.5 degrees. And in order to, uh, I'm going to outline a couple of opportunities to signal such intent. Uh, the first is the COP decision. We do expect uh, countries to recommit to uh, their Paris Agreement, uh, to the ambition mechanism that was uh, uh, established. Every five years, countries need to come back with enhanced uh, NDCs, and we do want uh, countries to recommit uh, uh, to, to do so by 2020. Uh, we also expect an, um, a presidency call uh, based on the report of the Talanoa Dialogue uh, to highlight that will highlight opportunities and practice to overcome barriers and opportunities to go further faster. Uh, we also expect a number of declarations uh, led by the presidencies, uh, but also led by a number of frontrunner countries. And uh, this includes uh, the Climate Vulnerable Forum, and I take this opportunity to highlight the upcoming Climate Vulnerable Forum Summit this week that will actually set the tone heading to COP24, reminding the world of the spirit of solidarity that we saw in Paris uh, three years ago and the urgency to take more ambitious action. Um, the second uh, aspect, the second pillar uh, in terms of deliverable for this uh, COP is the Paris Rulebook. Um, this is um, the set of guidance that we structure 
um, the, the Paris Agreement and galvanize international cooperation on climate change and enable better policies and ambitious climate action at national level. We expect countries to adopt a solid base of sets of, of rules um, and agree a timetable to finalize it. It's a very complex exercise, you know, it's been three years. Um, we still expect a number of details to be finalized, but we want to, to see a number of signals uh, agreed by this call. We want this full book to actually relate to uh, what policymakers are doing, planning, communicating their contribution, um, getting uh, an idea of how they implement their low emissions and climate resilience action effectively and transparently, and review and increase efforts uh, to meet the Paris Agreement goal. So we're going to monitor uh, the different tracks of negotiations that reflect you know, those uh, phases. Uh, we also hope that the adoption of the set of guidelines will move away, will move us away from a bifurcated world that we had. In the past, we had uh, requirements for developed countries, different requirements for developing countries, not always clear and with different set of standards. And what we want to see is everybody on the same boat, um, with uh, aspiring to the same uh, standards, of course, acknowledging that they, they, have different, they are at a different stage of development. Um, so, of course, in, in this context, there's going to be a number of political hurdles. Um, it's going to, we do have a Paris Agreement that, that is an hybrid between uh, providing clear international direction uh, for ambition and also allowing a very nationally driven approach. So how to balance uh, uh, these two dimensions remains difficult and also making sure that the scope of the guidelines uh, is comprehensive enough that everybody feels that um, you know, there are key issues, you know, are being taken uh, into account. But a robust, my final word would be that the a robust, clear and empowering foundations of rules is feasible and now within the region. This is, you know, what we are watching for. Great. Thank you, Yamid. Now we'll hear from Joe Thwaites. Joe. Thank you. Uh, so I'm going to talk about finance. Um, which is a critically important part of the Paris package. Uh, it's both an enabler of ambition and a means to build trust among countries. And we see three areas to watch at COP. Firstly, the funds. Uh, richer countries need to send clear signals. They intend to scale up support for developing countries, including by committing to an ambitious replenishment of the Green Climate Fund and by making pledges to the Adaptation Fund and the Least Developed Countries Fund, which support vulnerable communities in adapting to the impacts of a warming world. Secondly, the rules. Negotiators must work to ensure that within the Paris rulebook, there are clear provisions for how financial support for developing countries will be tracked, both in terms of projecting future funding, which can help countries to make more ambitious plans, but also reporting on past flows, which can help build knowledge about what's effective and make the case for further support. And negotiators must also ensure that the global stock take assesses progress in aligning all finance flows, public and private, to support the Paris Agreement. Indeed, it won't be achievable. The temperature and the adaptation goals will not be achievable unless we redirect those investment flows. Third and finally, the goals. In 2009, developed countries committed to mobilizing $100 billion a year in climate finance for developing countries by 2020. 
And with two years left, it's, it's natural to ask, well, how are they doing? Uh, this week, the UN Climate Convention will release its latest biennial assessment on climate finance. And this will give a state of play on finance flows up to the year 2016. Uh, it's a little bit like the IPCC for finance, uh, written by a team of experts and then signed off by governments. Um, and it's likely to show a significant increase in public funding since 2014 when the last report was done. Um, and it suggests that developed countries were on track to reach the 100 billion goal. And I, I say were because there are understandable concerns about what has happened in the years since then. Uh, given potential backsliding in the US and Australia, among some other countries, um, it's reasonable to ask, was 2016 a high watermark for climate finance? Um, unfortunately, uh, countries haven't publicized their 2017 climate funding data yet. Um, but we do have reporting from the multilateral development banks, and that actually shows that their climate finance grew by 28% between 2016 and 2017, which is a positive sign. Um, and there will also be a high-level ministerial dialogue on climate finance on the 10th of December, um, and this will provide an opportunity for countries to take stock of progress and also to announce new funding pledges that, again, can help build trust and enable further ambition. Great, thank you very much, Joe. And now we'll have our uh, fourth speaker, Helen Montfort, and then we will go on to uh, Q&A. So you can start thinking of your questions now. <laughs> Over to Helen. Thanks very much, Michael. And I want to share some of the reasons why the economic benefits that we're seeing on climate action and some of the exciting global momentum we're seeing are reasons why all governments should feel they can go into COP and uh, look to enhance their own ambition. We can put the world onto a sustainable and low-carbon growth path, and the opportunities are there. As Andrew mentioned, uh, the recent report of the New Climate Economy found that bold action on climate change could actually deliver $26 trillion in economic benefits between now and 2030 compared with business as usual. And this is likely to be a conservative estimate. So this has really turned the previous wisdom, the conventional wisdom, on its head. We don't have to choose between growth and climate action. We can really have both. We also found that it could generate over 65 million new low-carbon jobs in 2030, which is equivalent to the total workforces today of UK and the Egypt combined. It could avoid over 700,000 premature deaths from air pollution in 2030, and it could increase women's participation in the labor force, so achieving a range of social and economic objectives. The incentives are now clear, and the challenge is really how to accelerate action and to, to seize these opportunities. And we're seeing some really exciting areas where that's starting to happen, and I'd like to highlight just two examples um, to kick us off. First is around carbon pricing. Already today, we have 71 governments, either at the national level or subnational level, which have a price on carbon or are about to implement one. So they have a, a plan to do so. So this includes, for example, Mexico, Chile, Colombia, and soon all of Canada. That covers now 20% of global greenhouse gas emissions under some form of carbon pricing, which is an incredible increase from what we saw just a few years ago. In 2004, it was less than 1%. And in 2019, we have schemes starting in carbon pricing, starting in Argentina, in South Africa, and in Singapore. So there's real momentum building around those. We've also seen real benefits from carbon pricing. They not only drive innovation and efficiency, reduce emissions, but also raise very much needed uh, revenues for cash-strapped governments. 
2017, um, uh, carbon pricing around the world raised 33 billion U.S. dollars in revenues um, globally. Spreading carbon pricing further and also coupling this with removing some of the distorting fossil fuel subsidies could lead to as much as $2.8 trillion in revenues globally by 2030, um, equivalent to the total GDP of India today. So there's real opportunities from pushing forward with carbon pricing, and we're seeing countries starting to seize these. The second area I wanted to highlight is the finance sector, which we think is really rapidly waking up both to the opportunities, the economic and financial opportunities of low-carbon development, and also the real financial risks of high-carbon investments instead. And they're starting to shift. The smart money is shifting. Part of this reflects uh, some of the plummeting costs we've seen of uh, clean solutions. So, for example, the cost of solar and wind fell by 86% and 67% respectively between 2009 and 2017, dramatically falling costs. And when we combine these with new uh, innovations around battery storage options, um, we're opening up new possibilities for distributed clean energy that we've never seen before. And these really are, are, are shifting the agenda. Similarly, the growth in electric vehicles is something which no one foresaw. And now we have major companies coming forward saying that um, uh, they are moving to fully electric vehicle com vehicle uh, vehicles in the future. So we're seeing a real shift, and it's through the market. It's through uh, through investors. As Andrew mentioned, we've got nearly 400 investors with something like $32 trillion in assets under management that have taken action or committed to taking action on the investor agenda in climate. And uh, almost 500 companies representing over $7 trillion in market value that, which basically have the collective emissions the size of Canada, which have committed to setting science-based targets and reducing their emissions aligned uh, with what the science says is needed. So we're seeing real opportunities, economic, social opportunities, financial opportunities to move forward, and a number of the companies, investors, and countries are starting to seize those. The challenge now is how to make this more widely known and step up action, uh, scaling these successes quickly. <clears throat> Great. Thank you, Helen, and thank you to all of our uh, speakers. And now we'll turn it to um, the Q&A session. So, operator, uh, can you uh, give instructions on how people can ask questions, please? Certainly. Participants on the phone, we will now begin the question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question, you may press star followed by the number one. Please unmute your phone and record your name clearly when prompted. Your name is required to introduce your question. And to cancel your request, you may press star followed by the number two. Once again, participants on the phone, if you would like to ask a question, you may press star one. Please record your name when prompted. And to cancel, you may press star two. One moment, speakers, as we wait for the questions. Great. And as we're waiting uh, for our questions to come in, I wanted to let you know that we have a couple of additional speakers who are on hand to help uh, respond. Uh, we have near Anjali Amarasinga, who is a senior associate here in our finance center. We have David Waskow, who is the director of our international climate initiative here. And we also have Dan Lashoff, who is the director of WI US, who is based in California, who is also on hand to respond to questions. Um, and just one more thing that I wanted to mention is that the uh, food report that Andrew mentioned in his comments will be released on December 5th. And if you uh, are interested in sort of the food and ag sector and would like to uh, find out more about that report, you can contact me or my colleague Lauren Zellin here at WRI. 
Um, with that, operator, do we want to go to our first question, please? Our first question will come from Megan Rowling. We have an open line. Hi, um, everybody. Uh, question for Joe. Um, Joe, um, the climate finance report that's coming out um, <clears throat> from the UNFCCC, does it say, um, does it show uh, the split between mitigation and adaptation finance? If so, uh, where is that headed? And do you think if it's showing that um, public finance is on track to um, hit the 100 billion goal, that this is going to remove um, the pressure on countries to uh, step up to, to fill the gaps that are potentially being laid open by um, U.S. lack of enthusiasm for climate finance, and that you know donor countries can just going to be able to sit on their laurels with regard to climate finance <clears throat> between now and and uh, next year. Hi, thanks, Megan. That's a great question. Um, I definitely don't think they can sit on their laurels. I think that um, uh, in the, the report which, which we hear from the Secretariat will be out this week. Um, the previous editions of the report have certainly looked at this issue of um, adaptation and mitigation balance. Um, we expect it's, it's going to be around, in terms of the public finance flows from developed to developing countries, um, around 25% of that um, in face value terms uh, is, is adaptation finance. That's where we, we, we reckon it's going to land um, in, in aggregate terms. Um, but um, it, it will also look at uh, public finance but also private flows and, and, and the total landscape of, of climate finance. So it's a really, um, it sort of tries to take the whole sweep of, of, um, of the sector um, and, and really assess comprehensively the state of play um, so you'll get an answer in terms of what what are the global uh, you know from from all countries what's what's being invested in climate, but then also um, in the context of the 100 billion goal, it will also um, help in in answering where are we. But as I said, it only goes up to the year 2016. There's a there's a time lag between when countries have to report and then when um, uh, the years that they cover in that reporting, and and so. Um, just like the IPCC reports where sort of the latest science isn't always reflected in the report because there's a delay between how long they take to write it. it it's similar for this, this um, for the biennial assessment. So we'll know up to 2016, but as I said, there are, there are a few data points that are coming out slowly that are, that are giving um, some reassuring signs that, that in 2017 uh, things, things that, that momentum continued. As I said, the NDBs uh, raised their finance by, uh, for climate by 28%. Uh, the EU has also reported, and they show that their, their flows um, for uh, climate finance flows re remained uh, fairly stable. Um, I think there are still questions, and, and as I said, there's, there's a need for, for countries to continue the effort, to continue uh, scaling up effort, um, and that falls on all, all developed countries in the context of the 100 billion. Great, thanks, Joe. Um, should we go to the next question, operator? I think you maybe want to prompt to see if we want have some additional questions. Participants, if you would like to ask a question, you may press star one, and to cancel, you may press star two. Great, and maybe I'll take uh, as we're waiting for a question. Maybe I'll take the uh, as the chair. I'm going to ask a question, maybe of Andrew or Helen or. Maybe David, so I'll throw out a little curveball here. No, I'm going to ask a, a pretty general question about 
where where do we expect to see leadership from? I think there is a question of you know there's some positive signs as Helen outlined, but where where are signs of leadership coming in? Where where do you expect to see the leadership at the COP? I don't know, David, if you want to take that, maybe Andrew, um, um, to get the uh, signs of momentum and ambition that we need. I, I think we continue to see leadership um, from a number of actors and on a number of fronts. And um, in a sense, we're in a world that I think could be described um, as essentially distributed leadership, where it's not just one or two actors, but many actors on, on, on many fronts. Um, we're seeing that uh, across uh, developed countries, for example, we see Spain now moving quite aggressively. They've recently reached an agreement on um, phasing out their coal mines and working with the labor unions to do that, um, and uh, their coal plants. And also, um, Spain now has a draft law um, that's being considered that would uh, rapidly scale down emissions so that they would um, reduce emissions by 90% by 2050. Um, you have the Netherlands and Sweden pushing for strong uh, EU targets for an enhancement of their NDC by 2020, the European Parliament also doing so. Um, and then you have others, New Zealand, for example, Costa Rica has made significant moves in, um, toward decarbonization, for example. And then, on, uh, in addition to all that, um, as we've heard already, um, and as Andrew uh, highlighted, states, cities, businesses that are also working around the globe. Um, so all of this in tandem, I think, is what provides momentum on top of the fall in renewables prices, the um, growth in energy storage, the growth in electrical vehicles, et cetera. And so with all of that, um, and as uh, Yamin mentioned, we also have the Climate Vulnerable Forum Summit coming up in two days. Um, with all of that in place, I think we see the kind of um, momentum that's needed. It's not to say we should be Pollyanna. Um, there's clearly um, some who are um, resisting moving forward at the pace we need, but I think we do have a lot of energy in the system that can carry through to the COP. Great. <clears throat> Thanks, David. And I think we have another uh, question on the line. Our next question will come from Megan Rowling. You have an open line. Hi, sorry, it's me again. I wasn't sure if there was a big people. I was just wondering if you could fill us in on how you expect the um, uh, updated ambition process to unfold. Um, I think we may be starting to see the signs of that, um, but I was just wondering, you know, when do you think uh, we'll start to see updated climate targets, and is there a process for that, um, for um, raising the ambition of NDCs, or is it a question of, um, you know, countries reaffirming, as, as Yami said? I was just wondering, is there anything agreed on that, or what are the discussions around that? Um, should we be seeing those ahead oh, I, of 2020 or during? Sorry, Megan, I think we got it. I think we, sorry, I just want to, <laughs> sorry, keep things moving here. Thank you, Megan. Uh, Yamid is going to take a shot at, at giving some more, a little more detail on the uh, process. Thanks, Megan. Yes, Megan. What we expect at the COP is that we will see in the COP decision um, a schedule, um, a, a confirmation of the schedule that actually is already in the Paris Agreement, but just to say to countries, yes, by March 2020, we expect you to uh, submit uh, your next round of NDCs, and we expect it to be updated and revised based on the outcome of the Tananoa dialogue process based on the IPCC report. Uh, 
the Taranoa dialogue uh, process will uh, result in a report that could highlight, uh, as Helen and others have you know, mentioned, a number of opportunities that countries can take to enhance their NDCs. So this is the process that we envision, but that should be uh, highlighted in the COP decisions, hopefully. Great. I, just one word of addition. I think, um, as you made suggested earlier, I think that uh, layered onto that, there may be also a number of countries, um, some of them the CBF countries, um, but also others, who come forward at the COP to make very clear their individual intent, in addition to that collective intent, to go home, do their homework, and come back by 2020 with revised and strengthened NDCs. Great. Thanks. I think we'll go to the next question now. And uh, Megan, if you want to follow up in more detail, we'd be happy to do so as well. Um, next question, please, operator. Our next question will come from Mark Trumbull. You have an open line. Hello. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I'm Mark Trumbull with the Christian Science Monitor, and uh, thank you for doing this. Uh, I'm interested as as countries perhaps try to raise their ambition. Uh, what you see as the likely balance between um, uh, carbon pricing uh, versus regulation, and to the, and how much those things really need to go hand in hand in order to reach uh, climate targets, uh, compared with the view that, for instance, uh, uh, some proponents of carbon pricing are trying to make it more appealing to conservative. Uh, groups in the U.S. in particular uh, by saying, well, we'll do, uh, let's do carbon pricing as a kind of substitute for uh, regulation on things like getting more electric vehicles on the road or, or whatever. Uh, so I'm just interested in your sense of what the needed balance is between those two and what the likely shape of, of new ambitions will be around the world. Great. So I think I'll ask Helen to sort of take the, the big kind of global picture on that, and then maybe I'll ask Dan Lashoff if you want to come in a little bit on sort of the U.S. dynamics uh, following Helen. So, Helen, do you want to uh, share some thoughts? Absolutely. Thanks very much. I mean, uh, carbon pricing is an incredibly important instrument in, in achieving emissions reductions, and as I outlined, has lots of other benefits economically, fiscally, um, and, and socially as well. But it is only one instrument in what most countries will need of a broader mix of policy instruments. And those who are most successful at reducing their emissions um, do so with a package, which includes regulations. There's certain areas where carbon pricing is hard to reach um, those who need to take action. So uh, often we look for building efficiency regulations, fuel efficiency standards. Those sorts of regulations can be important complements. Um, in addition, uh, investment in investment and research and development is essential to keep looking for the new solutions, but also to bring down the costs of current solutions as we've seen dramatically falling recently. We need to keep pushing that frontier um, forward uh, in particular. Um, and then finally, another area which is really important and we're seeing more of is information-based instruments, which can help consumers and individual companies make better choices. Uh, for example, around energy-efficient appliances, um, more technologies, behavioral choices, and Andrew mentioned the future of food, how we can have better diets that are healthier for us, but also better for the planet. So, so it's really a package, and, and we're seeing in most countries uh, a package that goes into place. Carbon pricing is one of the ones which is most effective. It's also the most visible, so often tends to get uh, quite a bit of opposition. Where it is successful and able to move forward, it can be a very important part of such a package, as we've seen increasingly around the world. 
Great, thanks. And Dan, do you want to share a couple of thoughts on sort of specifically on the U.S. dynamics and some, you know, I think some renewed interest with uh, post uh, midterm elections? Yeah, so I think in the United States where we'll see carbon pricing move forward in the immediate future is at the state level, um, and that's where carbon pricing exists in a number of states in, in the form of uh, cap-and-trade programs in California that are multi-sector uh, and then um, in the Northeast uh, that, that cover the electric sector. There's momentum uh, to expand those programs, actually, uh, in, in the case of the Northeast program, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, the 2017 election brought new governors in Virginia and New Jersey who are uh, preparing to uh, join that program. So we'll see an expansion there. Uh, in, uh, in terms of the more uh, extensive California program, uh, Oregon's governor, Kate Brown, was reelected with a strengthened working majority in her legislature, so we expect to see them adopt uh, a, a multi-sector program and potentially link uh, to California and Quebec. Now, in all of those cases at the state level, as, as Helen suggested, uh, carbon pricing is a component of a, a multifaceted uh, program to reduce emissions. Um, at the federal level, certainly we expect uh, more debate about uh, federal carbon pricing and uh, the extent to which that could uh, be accompanied by uh, suspension of some federal regulations will be part of that debate. Uh, we saw last year an interesting bill from uh, uh, Carlos Cabello, a Republican of Florida, which suggested um, suspending regulation of stationary sources uh, provided that the carbon tax in his bill uh, was achieving its goals. Uh, uh, he, he was not reelected, uh, but two of his uh, Republican co-sponsors were reelected, uh, Mr. Rooney and Mr. Fitzpatrick. They pledged to uh, continue to uh, push that uh, legislation forward. So we'll, we'll certainly see a debate at the federal level. Uh, I think given uh, the, the makeup, uh, particularly in the Senate, uh, we're not likely to see anything enacted uh, on carbon pricing in the next Congress, but uh, the way that debate uh, develops will, will influence uh, how policy is conceived going forward. Great. And that was, again, Dan Lashoff, who's the director of the WRI U.S. Uh, program. Uh, we'll go to the next question, please. Our next question will come from Samini Sengupta. You have an open line. Uh, hi. Thanks for doing the call. This is a question for uh, Helen or Yemi, because you both referred to this in, in some way. Um, you laid out all the reasons why it's a good idea to move away from coal, including the plummeting prices of renewables. So I'd like to hear from you why you think uh, coal is still hanging on as the largest um, uh, source of electricity, uh, largest source of energy for electricity, and even um, going up. Coal consumption and production has even gone up this year. So I'd like your overall thoughts on that, um, if possible. And related, um, everyone expected, or many people expected a couple of years ago, for China to step up 
on global climate leadership, including by ratcheting down its uh, coal-related emissions. How's that gone? Um, has China stepped up? If so, what's the evidence? Uh, if not, why not? Great. Okay, thank you for the question. I think Helen's going to take a uh, first shot at this, and then maybe Andrew will share some comments both on general uh, thoughts on coal and then specifically related to China. So, Helen. Um, thanks very much. I, I, I do think um, I, I think what we're seeing around coal is in part that governments still have the policy handbrake on. Basically, the markets are starting to shift. The, the prices are shifting. Renewables has become increasingly cost-competitive and possible to integrate well into the grid. Um, but in many cases, we still see policies holding this back. One example is just around fossil fuel subsidies, um, which globally account for something like $373 billion each year. Um, uh, that's for uh, fossil fuel production and consumption, including coal and others. But coal is definitely still a part of that. A lot of the coal investments are ones from governments, and I think a challenge that we've seen, a real challenge we've seen, is shifting off of these partly because of concern about uh, the local communities and employment. And while we know that shifting to clean energy and renewable generates, in general, much uh, many more jobs uh, in, in, in total, and as I highlighted, there's a huge uh, potential for clean energy and clean uh, employment in the future as we move to a low carbon, it's still a challenge in terms of how to manage this transition. Now, I think one of the exciting things we've seen in the last one to two years is that a number of companies, a number of uh, countries and regions are starting to really step up on how to deliver a just transition for affected workers and communities. Um, and I can give just a couple of examples which are exciting. Uh, one is in Italy, where we have the NL uh, Energy Company, which is responsible for closing 23 coal-fired plants in the next couple of years. And they have set up a social dialogue with workers, uh, with the local community, um, with local industries, to look at how they can, uh, how they can make that transition work. Um, uh, in the places where they're closing coal-fired plants, they have committed to staying in place. They're not just going to leave the towns and the communities. Where it is um, relevant or where it's possible, they're going to put in place renewable energy. Um, where it's not, they're going to generate tech hubs, again, working with the local communities and colleges and others. So, so they're providing a solution um, in, in, in the same place um, as they shift away from coal. Um, David mentioned before that uh, Spain has put forward a bold plan to move to 100% renewables in 2050, by 2050. And they have done so with a very explicit condition that they want to do this as a just transition and work with the, the coal mines and the miners to actually make that transition work. Um, we're seeing similar sort of just transition plans in, in Alberta, in Canada, in Uruguay, in Scotland, in Norway. Germany has a major commission on now on the future of coal. So we're starting to see these shift. Um, and so uh, I, I do think there's some real hope that some of the, the sort of policy handbrake that has been on and, and preventing this shift from happening despite the markets is now going to be lifted off as governments start to see that there are opportunities going forward and uh, they can learn from the successes in other countries. Great. Thanks. So now, <coughs> Andrew, do you want to uh, come in and, and, and also uh, probably address the China question briefly? Well, I mean, it's really sort of six countries in South and East Asia that are still uh, increasing their coal consumption for for power. Um, uh, and and uh, it is important to understand, as Helen says, you know, the inertia that exists. 
uh, institutions are inherently conservative. Um, so too there are um, there are power companies, there are utilities. For the last 50 years, they've been doing it a certain way. It's actually quite ecologically for them to adjust. And so at the moment, there are some really important conversations going on in Indonesia, in Vietnam, in, uh, in Pakistan, in, in, and obviously um, in India. Um, and uh, and in, 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 in China, uh, you know, as you know, coal consumption fell for three, three years in a row, and then last year it uh, jumped up again um, a, a little bit. I, I just came back from China a couple of weeks ago. Um, I, I mean, I do believe very profoundly that when they talk about ecological civilization, they actually are serious about it. They, they, they do believe they're on to something here. Um, and, and one of the interesting challenges for the, for the Chinese is they're trying to figure out what policy instruments will really get them there. In the last year, as you probably know, air pollution has fallen a lot in cities like uh, Beijing and, and, other, and a lot of other cities too. Uh, the way they've done that is through bold actions that, quite frankly, most countries could not take. Um, so in Hebei province around the, uh, Beijing, you know, they've, they've closed factories, uh, sometimes temporarily, sometimes permanently. Um, as a result, air pollution has improved a lot. At the same time, that's actually quite uh, expensive economically. And so one of the really interesting sort of uh, analytical challenges for them is right now is how do you, how do you follow policies that will, um, that will both enable you to uh, to rapidly decarbonize, but at the same time do it at a low cost. And of course, um, once you have such entrenched uh, industry and uh, and power systems, it actually uh, it takes it takes um, some 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 doing to do that. So so that's sort of where they are. But I think, as Helen says, the issue of ecological um, of of a sort of the just transition. And workers, I mean, this is a problem all around the world. I mean, in this country, the United States, I mean, I think both parties have really failed to grapple with that. Um, if, you took, uh, if you took less than 2% of the revenues uh, from a, a halfway decent carbon price, you could pay every coal miner in the country till the day they die with an escalating uh, salary each year. Um, look at Germany right now. I mean, Germany has been the leader on climate change what 7,000 lignite miners are doing. Um, and understandably, the government is trying to sort of figure out how do we actually follow a sensible policy. And it's not just paying the money. Obviously, it's to do with human dignity, it's to do with retraining and so on. And we've always found that um, quite, quite difficult. It is worth, worth saying that in the, the first month of 2018, um, more coal-fired power plants closed in the United States than in the three years 2009 to 2011. So um, despite the federal government's effort to, to, um, bring, to make coal great again, um, uh, unfortunately it's very much um, going in the wrong direction, and, and the only way forward obviously is, is through export, um, and uh, demand for exports uh, we hope will decline. Great. <laughs> thank you, and uh, thank you for the question. Let's uh, go on to the next question, please. Our next question will come from Marlo Hood. You have an open line. Yes, thank you very much. Thanks for uh, organizing this. Um, I feel like a bit of a party pooper with my questions on the back of this kind of upbeat assessment, but um, uh, just thinking of, of one thing that we're likely to hear at the beginning of the COP, which is that um, global emissions will uh, go up again in 2018 as they did in 2017, 
And I'm just wondering two things, I guess, how you square that very, you know, hard reality with uh, the, the kind of upbeat assessment that you've given us on momentum and all the areas in which we're seeing progress. And uh, the other part of that question, I guess, is how long can we wait? I mean, my impression coming out of of uh, South Korea uh, was that it's it's really no longer two minutes to midnight. It is midnight. And, um, you know, Andrew, you spoke about this, this the inertia, and obviously there's a huge amount of that that, uh, that uh, you know, climate action is, is battling against. But, um, you know, at what point uh, does it uh, you know, become uh, unviable? Yeah, I, I would just, I'll turn it over to Andrew. I'm not sure, that, I think the message isn't so much about beatness. I think it is the urgency and the direness of it. And what we're trying to point to are the opportunities that we do think are in front of us. But that's just my uh, reflection. I'll turn it over to Andrew for the uh, for WRI's uh, position on, on, on your question. Thanks, Mark. Well, Marlo, it, 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 I'm very glad you raised that question because um, we live in this sort of uh, twilight zone between sort of uh, hope and despair. Um, and uh, it's despair that actually is the theme that should be driving uh, leadership right now. Um, you know, some people say, how is it possible that there are some people that are so optimistic uh, and there are other people that are so pessimistic? Um, and the answer is, um, actually, they're both right. Um, think, about, uh, think about sort of chasing a, a, a bus and the bus is accelerating further away, and we're going faster and faster, we should rejoice that we've just broken the world record. We are, we are running faster than we've ever run. We're doing more amazing things, more carbon pricing, more, you know, etc. At the same time, the gap between us and the bus is increasing. And this, I mean, comes back to the issue of leadership. I mean, quite frankly, there is a lot of leadership on the ground right now. I mean, what Mr. Modi's trying to do in India actually is very impressive. What various governors in the state of, you know, in the United States, what even some, some European countries are doing, it's great um, on the ground. What we are not seeing is the kind of, you know, I will, we will get to the moon this decade, you know, even although we don't, and we are going to bring absolutely the sort of all the resources we need. We do not have a Manhattan Project moment. And, and how wonderful it would be and to, to identify, you know, half a dozen world leaders that say this is the challenge of our generation. I think Mr. Macron would like to do that. I think Xi Jinping sort of feels that in his bones that he's, he's ready to do it. But my goodness me, we are desperately lacking that. And how sad it is that sort of the traditional leaders um, at the moment, for various understandable political reasons, are not able to come forward. So, so I, I, I do want to sort of <laughs> nip in the bud any notion that we, we are Panglossian. We're not. Um, but, you know, what we do spend a lot of time thinking about is how do you motivate these heads of state, these CEOs? Um, it, it seems that sort of the despair motif is not what's going to get them up in the morning. Um, it has to be some combination of you know, the urgent and the possible kind of thing. And so that's, that's the sort of the balance we try to tread. Great. Thank you. And Yamid is going to also comment on this uh, uh, from her perspective. Just to say that in this particular context, um, you know, COP24 is a kind of springboard, and we do have the UN Secretary General who is trying to take the rein and do exactly what, you know, um, 
Andrew said. So the idea is for next year by September, the UN Secretary General Summit, you know, to try to really rally a number of leaders, not only from developed but developing countries, um, to really try to do the, the, the right thing and to, to, to identify, you know, what will be the real incentive and the, that Manhattan can offer um, uh, those, those ideas. So I just wanted to flag that opportunities. Uh, uh, the, the, the COP24 actually will start with the theme of just transition. There's going to be a declaration. So they're taking this also seriously. And it's going to finish with, you know, concluding on the basis of a Talanoa dialogue that we call for the UN General, uh, Secretary General Summit. So very much bringing the, the narrative that that um, Andrew said. Great. <clears throat> thanks, Shamid. Um, thanks for the question, Marlo. Let's uh, go to the next question. I think we have time for probably just a couple more, so maybe we can tick off a couple relatively quickly. Our next question will come from Martina Jeffcoat. You have an open line. Thank you very much. Um, I'm from NHK Japan Broadcasting Corporation. My question is, uh, what is the role of the U.S. going to be at this year's COP? Um, also in regards to China and the tensions between U.S. and China during past negotiations, the Global Climate Fund in Bangkok as well. Uh, so what can we expect the U.S. delegation to be doing? Thank you. Great. I think we'll ask uh, David to comment on the U.S. delegation. Yeah. I I think in, in a lot of respects, the U.S. Um, in the negotiations will stay the course. Um, many of the uh, policies that um, it has been uh, pursuing in, in the negotiations in the last couple of years very much go back over uh, a number of administrations, both Republican and Democratic. Um, in particular, um, there's been a long-standing U.S. position on transparency that would apply to all countries to have a common framework um, for all countries that includes, for example, China. And I think that's very um, much consistent with where um, this current administration's thinking is at. And so I don't, I, I don't really think that there would be uh, much deviation from that kind of standpoint. So I think there's a through line in terms of the um, perspective that, that will come to, to these negotiations. Um, and um, as you know, uh, the U.S., uh, there's a U.S. negotiator who has been co-facilitating the transparency negotiations with a Chinese negotiator, um, and I think that that um, relationship will continue. And although they're wearing somewhat more neutral hats in that role, I think that um, they are nonetheless able to steer that um, and have been successful so far in steering that um, toward a conclusion. So that, that's, in essence, how, how I think it will play out. Anything you want to add? Okay. Thank you. Thanks, David. That's, um, thank you for the question. Let's go to the next question, please. Our next question will come from Kiyoshi Ando. You have an open line. Hi, this is Kiyoshi Ando for Japanese economic newspaper, Nikkei. Um, you were talking about uh, the a higher ambition and uh, leadership of uh, the, the leaders of the countries, but we expect only a handful of uh, heads of the state, especially uh, from Europe, uh, who will be attending this conference, and it will be much less than previous conferences. So uh, I don't see much ambition there. Uh, why do you think there's uh, much ambition here? And also, 
uh, in Japan, we expect to see just a very minimum agreement in, in this COP. But uh, uh, I think you were talking about uh, the possibility of uh, better uh, agreement and more uh, uh, decisions, uh, higher ambitions. Why are you confident that this COP, uh, at this COP, we will see uh, more uh, progress? Great. So I think um, I think Yamid and, and others laid out some of the key things that we're looking for. But uh, Yamid, do you want to take another uh, shot at this question? Thank you. Yes, I think uh, you know, despite you know the despair and and, and some worrying signs, um, I think this is a, a, a historical moment. Um, countries committed uh, to first get the rules of the games right to really drive the acceleration we want to see and uh, provide you know the right signal at you know, after the release of a report that really put everybody on the corner. So we, I think um, there's uh, an acknowledgement uh, by leaders that uh, this is a critical time, and I don't think that they want to fail this COP. It's a very complex and difficult, uh, uh, the geopolitics are, difficult, are, are not easy, uh, and, and, and the rules even of the, of the games are very complex and difficult also to, um, to, uh, to, um, to finalize. I, I, I think that uh, there's a sense after the pre-COP, you know, when ministers met, that uh, you know, we can make progress within this COP. Uh, we are going to have, uh, and we're pushing for the most comprehensive package, even if we know that there are a few uh, elements that we need to be further detailed after the COP. So this is for the Paris rule book. Um, but there's going to be, I think, uh, there's going to be uh, some progress there. Um, so I just wanted to highlight uh, the fact that, you know, countries really realize, and, and even the, 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 the COP presidency, they don't want uh, this COP to fail, and there's going to be um, a, a lot of um, pressure to work around the clock, you know, to get something that is decent. Great. Thanks. And I'll turn to Helen next and then um, give the last word to Andrew. Helen? Just briefly, I think it's also important to look for this leadership outside of the COP. Um, and, and fundamentally, to get the sort of transformational change we need, it's going to be essential to integrate climate change directly into economic development infrastructure investment plans. So it can't be separate and at the side. It's got to be fundamentally part of what we're doing with our economies and with our development paths. And, and you're starting to see some exciting developments there. And I just have highlight Indonesia, who next year will be coming forward with their next five-year development plan. And uh, President uh, Widodo has committed that this will be the first ever low-carbon development plan for Indonesia, and they're integrating it directly into their plan. Some recent work that the Ministry of, Finance, the Ministry of Planning has been doing has found that going low-carbon will actually be a better, stronger economic plan than their current plan for Indonesia. So there's real opportunities turning up in terms of leadership outside and really integrating into fundamental economic plans. Great. And over to Andrew. Look, it, it, it would be it would be uh, nice uh, if more uh, heads of state went to this COP, but actually, um, you know, there's stuff to be done that ministers do and so on. There are more important meetings for, um, for heads of state. Uh, the most important one possibly is actually uh, in the hands of Prime Minister Abe this, this uh, year, Kyoshi. I mean, what the G20 does um, on climate change is incredibly important. 
And if there is no leadership shown in the next G20, we will be in bigger trouble than we are now. The G20 must seize this issue, and that's a place where heads of state of the leading 20 countries, plus the EU, plus the multilateral development agencies, plus the UN, come together. You know, it's really, really important that, and I do hope that those of you in the media in Japan are really you know, pleading with your, uh, your government to put that on the, uh, on the agenda. And then, of course, following, that's in June, I guess, then following that, of course, there is a Secretary General's um, high-level uh, head of state summit on climate change in September, which will be, hopefully, will play the same role for the 2020 ambition as the um, 2014 summit in New York played leading up to Paris. So this next year, the stakes are extremely high, and it's a great opportunity for leaders to lead. Great. Thank you so much. Um, so with that, we'll uh, wrap up today's call. Again, um, please feel free to get in touch with me or any of my colleagues. We can follow up on these issues. We have lots of information on our website, um, including uh, our list of events that we'll be participating in, other resources, our blogs, and uh, research uh, that, goes, uh, that goes into this effort. And many of us will be on the ground in Poland in just a couple of weeks. Thank you again for joining today's call. And that will conclude today's call. Thank you. And that concludes today's conference call. Thank you all for participating. You may now disconnect. <laughs>